The California Community Colleges system is the largest system of higher education in the country, with 2.1 million students across 116 colleges. It's an engine for economic mobility, and the leader of that system is Eloy Ortiz Oakley, who is an alumnus of UCI and was also a first-generation college student himself. How can potential first-generation students pave their way to a college education, and how is Chancellor Oakley helping them get there? From the University of California, Irvine, I'm Aaron Orlowski, and you're listening to the UCI Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Chancellor Oakley. We're really grateful that you were able to to join us here today. Well, it's great to be with you, and it's always great to be back on campus. Well, as a first-generation college student yourself, what is a piece of advice or something you would say to uh, you know, someone in California whose family has never had a college graduate mm-hmm. and they're, you know, thinking about if they should pursue college, um, but they're not so sure, you know, right. what would you tell them? I would say the thought about going to college and particularly about going to UC in that moment in time may seem overwhelming, not doable. But if, if I can get them to just break down the parts and how you actually get there, and communicate how that actually works. If we break it down like that, then I think it gives more people insight as to how they can make UC part of their life. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't think about going from high school to a UC, but we know how competitive that is and how challenging that could be. So I would just say, don't give up on that dream. If it doesn't work out right out of high school, or if your circumstances are problematic today, Think about just going to your local community college. And if you're a first-generation low-income student, you're not gonna have to pay any tuition. It's going to be free. Uh, and there's so many support services. But you know, walk in there and say, I wanna be in the UC. And they'll help you find that transfer pathway. And then, then it becomes easier to break down and understand how you actually get there. And it becomes more doable because you just, you know what classes you need to take, and then it just becomes an issue of just knocking down one class after another. The only way you get to graduation, the only way you get to transfer is one class at a time. And once they see that roadmap, it's a lot easier and a lot less overwhelming. Can you tell me a little bit more about your growing up years? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have anybody in my family who understood the UC. Uh, It was a mystery, Uh, even though, you know, we turn on the TV and watch UCLA basketball. (laughs) That was it. That's what I knew about the UC. Uh, So uh, for so many students, while they uh, may not hear the messages we're sending them, what they're getting on the ground is don't worry about the UC. That's that's another universe. That's for somebody else. That's for that. Those uh, those students who you think are nerds growing up in high school who are preparing (laughs) themselves to go to college, uh, who are you know, uh, have the means, have the background, have the family support structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that wasn't my upbringing. Uh, I had very loving parents who worked very hard, um, but there was nobody in my community who I could turn to and say, hey, you know, how do I get into the University yeah. of California? So then um, you decided after high school to go into the army. What was behind that decision? Well, <laughs> There's a lot behind that decision, but I was finishing up high school and 
I was a, I was an athlete. I, I, I played a little football and I did get recruited from schools like um, Pitzer College and Brown University and a few really good schools, but I had no idea what those schools meant. All I knew was that they couldn't pay for my entire education. And so that left me wondering how, I, how was I gonna do this? How was I gonna take the bus from LA to Pomona? You know, how was this going to work? Mm -hmm. So rather than doing what now I know, um, I would give the advice to students, which is just do it. You know, they'll help you find a way to pay for your education. I had no idea and I had no one to turn to. So I wound up doing what a lot of 18 year olds with a lot of time on their hands do, getting into trouble, staying out late at night, um, doing odd jobs. And then just one day I decided I need to leave this environment. I want to do something I feel is worthwhile. And so I joined the army and, and left for four years. Yeah. And then you went to, to Golden West College uh, in Huntington Beach and then transferred to UCI. Was that kind of part of the plan all along or? Well, quite frankly, there was really no plan other <laughs> than just get into Golden West and see what yeah. happens. You know, let's, let's just go to school because it took me uh, after I got out of the army, I worked for about two and a half years. Um, I had a, a, a baby girl. I was trying to create a family. I was working full time. Uh, and that experience as well, I realized I wasn't going to go anywhere. I was going to continue to do the manual labor that, you know, my bosses needed me to do, which was fine for a little while. So I just happened to, to be in Huntington Beach. I happened to stop at Golden West College. And fortunately, they allowed me to to register that day for classes. Wow. And I just started taking a few classes and before I knew it, I figured out I can do this. It sounds like, you know, once you got on that trajectory and once people were telling you, you can do this and here's the path, that gave a lot more clarity and you right. were able to, you know, go from Golden West to UCI um, in the School of Social Ecology. Uh, you earned your bachelor's in, in uh, environmental analysis and design in right. 1996. So what's uh, one of your you know, favorite memories or favorite spots here on campus? Well, I mean, uh, so first of all, you know, I was raising a family. So um, I was living off campus for a while. And then I came across, you know, a, um, a student family living arrangement. So um, it was uh, the, the student housing on, on Adobe Circle. I applied and I got in. Uh, so... I could be on campus and, and be able to, to take my classes and go to work uh, and not have to worry about my family. So that was a real big um, incentive for me to, to finish because now I was on campus. There was no excuses. Um, and I was quite fortunate. And I think some people you know, underestimate how much those kinds of services help first-generation students. Because otherwise, you know, you're living off campus, you're disconnected from the campus, and there's so much going on in your life that it's hard to keep that in the front of your mind. But when you're on campus, you see it everywhere you go. So that was a, a, a big plus. Uh, so that that's certainly a memory because my youngest kids grew up there, or my now oldest kids, they grew up uh, in the housing there. And uh, But beyond that, you know, it's just... I still remember a lot of my professors in, in the School of Social Ecology. Um, I still talk to some of them. Uh, and uh, for me, it was just a great experience uh, just being on campus and feeling like I could possibly get my BA here. Yeah. Well, did, so you were a first generation college student. Did that 
you know, did that sink in for you at the time? Did you feel like you were a first generation college student or, or what did that mean to you, you mm -hmm. know, at the time? I think looking back today, you know, I never felt like I was different. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, being on campus, I could feel, I could see that I was different. You know, I was yeah. typically a little older than most people in my class. I was already in my mid twenties. But what became clear is that I had a lot I needed to figure out. I still didn't understand how to navigate the system. And fortunately, I got a lot of clear advice. I came in to UCI on, on a program called uh, Zero In on Transfer, the ZOT program. Uh, most people probably don't even remember that now, but what that was is uh, a contract. So if I completed certain courses at Golden West and got a certain GPA, and then they told me what courses I needed to complete in the School of Social Ecology, I could get my BA. So I had a clear roadmap and that was very, very helpful. I mean, what happened after you graduated? Because you went to get your MBA pretty quickly thereafter. Yeah, so I was in the environmental field uh, when I got out of the army and they needed some help at Golden West. And so I wound up working there while I was going to school part-time. Uh, and so when I finished my BA, um, what they told me at Golden West uh, was, hey, you know, if you can get your master's, there's so many more job opportunities that would be open to you in the community colleges. Uh, and they offered to let me work three quarter time uh, if I uh, went and got my graduate degree. And I thought, what is um, the most um, likely graduate degree I can get that would allow me as much access to the things I wanted to do? And so I focused in on the Graduate School of Management and uh, decided to get my MBA. So you've mentioned a couple of the, the different ways that UCI helped you as a first-generation college student. There was the ZOT program you mentioned. Um, you know, UCI is the, the number one school doing the most for the American dream, according to the College Access Index from the New York Times, mm -hmm. um, doing a lot to make sure that uh, colleges are a place for upward mobility. You know, what do you think are some ways that uh, UCI does that well um, that other universities and colleges could learn from? Well, first, when I was growing up, UC Irvine had a professor, Eloy Rodriguez. I think he was a botanist. And I thought, well, hell, if a professor can, with my name, can, can exist here, then, then that's got to be a plus. And then you had two administrators here. Uh, uh, someone who became the vice chancellor of student services, uh, Manuel Gomez, and somebody who was, I, I think his title was uh, uh, assistant vice chancellor or something like that, and Juan Lara. Two prominent Hispanics in the community who really took the time to reach out to students like me. Mm -hmm. And they did, both of them did. I got to know both of them. Um, and so it was that kind of personal touch, um, that kind of, of understanding of what first generation students were going through that certainly helped me and I'm sure helped thousands of other students like me. How have you applied some of you know, your experiences as a first generation student to your role today with the California Community Colleges? Well, first, I mean, I, I lean on my experience as a student every day. Uh, I mean, I just growing up where I grew up, uh, thinking about the challenges that many of our students face. If we're coming from households where we're used to seeing um, our children go to college, it's hard to imagine what those struggles are. So I try to bring those struggles to the forefront in, in everything that, that we do and in anything that we do at the Board of Regents. You know, that, that's a struggle that we need to always recognize. 
even though for most of the people in the room at any given time in any meeting, there are people who already have their college degrees or people who have advanced degrees, people who've been in academia for their entire life. Sometimes it's hard to remember the struggles. So one of the things that I'm proud to have been working on previously with Jenna Napolitano, now Michael Drake, is the question of transfer to the University of California. How do we lower the barriers for more community college students? How do we lower the barriers for more first-generation students across the board? And I think you touched on something that I feel is also very important, which is just to have the voice in the room. You know, mm -hmm. you're also the first uh, Latino chancellor of the California Community Colleges system. And, you know, if it's just people who don't have experiences like yours, then they do have a harder time relating. So you're able to you know, be more of a voice in that room, uh, representing those students who had experiences like yours. Well, I, I agree. I think the more diverse uh, viewpoints, backgrounds that we have in the room, the better decisions we're going to make. And that's, that's clear. I mean, the more diversity we have in the classroom, the more diversity we have in the administration, uh, on boards, that all helps to inform how our decisions might impact the students that we're serving. And ultimately, you know, we as, as the California Community Colleges or the University of California, our mission is to serve every Californian. And so, um, you know, I feel my job every day is just to bring that voice to the table and to give cover to others who want to express that concern. Because, you know, even though I came through that pathway, I'm still several re years removed from that pathway. So um, having students in, at the table is also a very important thing because my experience, uh, as similar as it might be to some students today, is still different than students today. Well, how can students you know, make their voice heard more? I'm sure that there's both you know, sort of formal representation through the process, but then there might be some informal ways as well. Mm -hmm. what, what do you find is effective or what do you recommend? Well, first, um, the student leaders that I've interacted with, whether it be in, in the, the chancellor's job in the Board of Governors, we have two student uh, Board of Governors members, or at the University of California, the student regents, they've been amazing. I mean, it just makes you feel great about the future when you see some of these students. So I'm, I'm very proud of the student leaders that I've seen over, over the last several years. But you know, that's just a small minority of student population. And as impactful as they are, it's, it's important that students in all roles, even those students who can't participate in student government, find ways to express what their experience is like um, and find ways, if, if nothing more, than to just show up at an office hour with a faculty member and let them know what they're experiencing so that they can begin to influence a conversation with one faculty member who might take that conversation to a department meeting, who might take that conversation to the dean, and so on and so forth. So the more voices we have in all parts of student life, uh, the better. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the biggest item of news that has been affecting all of us for months now, the coronavirus. So what was that like when the pandemic was starting um, for you at the California Community Colleges system and uh, starting to go remote? What mm -hmm. happened there? Well, it was definitely a tough transition. I mean, you know, 2020 has been a very interesting year so far. We had this sudden shutdown. Uh, and um, in many ways, um, you know, there was so much unknown. 
not just because of the, of the suddenness of, of the event, but the fact that this was happening across the entire nation. Yeah. You know, we're used to we're used to crises in California, but they're usually localized in regions. We have an earthquake, we have a fire, we have a flood. It doesn't affect the entire system. In this case, the entire system literally had to shut down over a two week period and then figure out how we were going to pivot to continue instruction. So it was tough. It was particularly tough on our students. You know, our students are in some of the most vulnerable communities in California. They're some of the least resource families in California, and they literally lost jobs. They lost everything. They lost family members to the disease. Uh, so it, it, uh, those first few months were very tough uh, for our campus community, but um, you know, they're very resilient and we've just kept pushing forward. Yeah, the, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, in the community colleges system, those are a lot of the most vulnerable communities. Have you been able to institute any programs or, or do anything in particular to make sure that they're able to access learning remotely? Yes, so this crisis has highlighted um, something that we knew what was ha well, that was happening in California, but um, we didn't pay enough attention to, which is the lack of access to broadband throughout the state of California. So as soon as we shut down, I mean, this became a huge issue, mm -hmm. not just in community colleges, but in the entire K-12 system. Um, you know, families who did not have access to quality broadband in their homes, or in some cases, there wasn't even access to broadband in their communities, uh, became a problem. Most students in those situations were accessing broadband through their phones. Um, so, and, and where were they getting their Wi-Fi? At McDonald's, at Barnes and Noble, at Starbucks. They were picking up Wi-Fi there and studying there. Well, all that shut down. So that was a huge issue for our students. Um, yes, there were also financial issues. Um, they had to pay rent, they, were, they lost jobs. But the first thing was how do we get them the equipment that they need mm -hmm. to continue instruction? So we rallied, uh, we got access to providers of, uh, of equipment, um, Chromebooks and things like that. Um, we worked with the uh, internet service providers to get access to low cost or no cost Wi-Fi in the homes. We issued thousands of personal Wi-Fi's or MiFi's to our students. We some campuses brought vans that had access to Wi-Fi into the parking lot and allowed students to come in and park yeah. and participate in instruction. And you'd be surprised how many thousands of students access Wi-Fi that way. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like you know, you, you and the system stepped in to triage the problem and figure out how to get solutions on the ground right away. What are the long-term solutions for, for this problem in the you know, months and possibly years ahead? Well, we're trying to figure out how do we embrace the gains in the use of technology that we've been able to harness in these uh, last six, seven months? And how do we continue them going forward? How do we provide, you know, great opportunities for our faculty to become more comfortable in an online or remote working environment? How do we better measure success in that environment? How do we ensure that our most vulnerable students are successful? Mm -hmm. And so beyond that, you know, we, we also have to highlight the fact that one, the social network, the social fabric of our society needs to be addressed, whether that is 
the challenges with disproportionate outcomes in health for communities that we serve up and down the state, certainly the lack of health care for many of our students. I mean, if you think about who this virus has hit the hardest, it is communities of color, it is low-income communities. They've had to suffer from the health effects, they've had to suffer from the economic fallout, they've had to suffer from the direct impact of the social unrest that we're seeing um, around policing or some of the other issues that are coming up in, in communities. So we really need to think about how do we shine a, a bright light on those communities and how do we get them the resources that they need so that um, they can come out from, from this crisis somewhat whole. Yeah, so as you think about you know the challenges that the coronavirus has created and the other challenges that you just brought up, uh, you know, every challenge has some opportunities attached to it, and the shakeup can lead to a better future and a better society. You know, so when you look at it from from that angle, what do you think are some of the opportunities to really you know grow as a society from right. these challenges? Well, I think one obvious one is, you know, you don't have to drive from Riverside to come to Irvine and work anymore. Uh, so I think that opens up our eyes about how do we organize ourselves as, as education institutions? How do we make it um, easier for our own employees to be able to, to do their work without ruining the environment or costing them an arm and a leg in, in transportation costs? Likewise, our students. You know, how, how, do, how do we organize ourselves with the new tools that we have? Because you know, the California Community Colleges, like the CSU, like the UC, you know, we were very hesitant to embrace new learning technologies. So there's a lot of things that I think we're learning in this pandemic that um, I'm very hopeful we're going to hang on to and, and help us become more accessible, lower cost to students, lower, you know, lower cost to our employees, lower cost to society. Uh, because, you know, campuses like UCI become very carbon neutral on campus. But, uh, you know, we have a lot of work to do with, um, with the rest of the communities. And I think this pandemic offers us some insights about what we can do different. So if the old paradigm was, you know, everyone commuting into either their workplace or commuting into campus and, and spending all this time in person, do you envision that the new paradigm might be more of a mix of uh, remote instruction and in-person instruction once the virus passes? I certainly do. I mean, clearly, the importance of an experience like students have here at UCI is the, the opportunity to be amongst other students, the opportunity to engage. But I think this pandemic gives us some insights into other models that we could pursue. Um, can we work with some of our sister campuses to create centers in other parts of the state so that perhaps students who are attending UC Irvine who might be closer to UC Riverside might have a place to go where they can engage with students, uh, but still participate in the instruction. So I think it does gives a, give us an opportunity to rethink the model, not to take away from what makes, you know, the undergraduate or the graduate experience valuable on a campus like UCI, but how do we make it more democratic for other students to be able to have a similar experience, if not the same? Yeah. So if you were, you know, if you could choose just one thing on that accessibility note to focus on to really make the experience more accessible, the college experience more accessible to potential first generation students or to low income students, uh, you know, what is that one first thing that you would focus on? I think 
harnessing technology to meet students where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, finding ways to the use of the technology that we've been introduced to. How do we leverage that to meet students where they're at? Mm -hmm. Most students, and especially first generation students, go to school within 70 miles or so of their home. Um, that's true for the community colleges, true for the CSU, and to a great extent, it's true for the UC. Uh, so, so how do we rethink um, that paradigm? How do we help more students through the use of technology, through the use of some shared resources, um, so that more students can have the UC experience without having to sacrifice family or having to move, and particularly right now when so many students are concerned about leaving home, being in residential housing. Uh, plus the cost of residential housing, now speaking as a regent, is so high. You know, how do we rethink that model? Well, Chancellor Oakley, your story is incredibly inspiring and you know, we're really grateful that uh, you're the leader of the Ch California Community Colleges system and you know, we're really proud of you as, a, as an anteater. So thank you so much for joining us here at UCI today. We really appreciate it. It's great being with you. The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. Please subscribe to the UCI Podcast wherever you listen.